Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Morsley Hospitals in South London. Today we're talking to Professor Sean Lewis, who is a professor of psychiatry based at the University of Manchester, and he and Geoffrey Lieberman have published a fascinating paper in the March edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Katie and Cutlass, Can We Handle the Truth? Uh, now, Sean, the Katie and Cutlass in the title of the paper refers to two major studies looking at antipsychotic medication. Before we get into talking about those particular studies, what's the sort of background to this editorial you've written in terms of the concerns over which antipsychotic medication to prescribe? Well, I guess the background, Raj, is that as clinicians, we're always struggling with poor treatment response to the medications we have for people with schizophrenia. So as we know clinically, some lucky people will respond quite well and stay well, but a lot of people won't. They'll make partial responses or no response at all. And then we're really struggling with things like dosage, combining medication, backup medication, and all those sorts of issues. And that's how the the, situation has been for generations now, I guess. So the question, what drug is best to use, has not gone away. And I suppose... Back in the early 90s, we remember collectively how there was a lot of fanfare for the uh, atypical antipsychotics, as they were called then. This seemed to promise a new therapeutic uh, uh, opening in uh, the treatment of people with schizophrenia, uh, both in terms of um, tolerability, getting away from the old uh, extrapyramidal side effects, and apparently in terms of effectiveness. So these drugs seem to be better. Generally, we were told for people with schizophrenia in terms of the positive symptoms, but also in terms of negative symptoms, in terms of cognitive deficits, in terms of uh, all sorts of other secondary areas, such as mood disorders, things like that. So there was a lot of um, push in terms of um, marketing, I guess, from from the side of the companies, which is, of course, what they do. And also, I think clinicians were very ready to believe uh, that this was a new therapeutic um, option because they wanted to. So we've uh, really got a situation since the early to mid-90s where the prescription of these atypicals, which came to be called second-generation drugs, uh, escalated exponentially so that... uh, the um, costs to GPs who do 80% of uh, prescribing antipsychotic drugs in the UK, not through initiating prescriptions usually, but through repeat prescriptions, they were starting to be concerned that these were eating into their drug budgets. The global market went up to about $15 uh, billion US dollars uh, per year uh, over the past uh, three or four years. There were major expenditures on the new drugs and Policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly in the UK and the US, started to ask difficult questions. Well, where really is the evidence that these new drugs are worth this extra outlay, particularly in the US with health maintenance organizations whose um, driver often is uh, uh, economic costings? There was a lot of um, pressure put on to uh, 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 prescribers and industry to really justify the the uh, extra outlay on these new drugs. So from a various sort of uh, points of pressure, really, um, uh, both the UK and uh, the US governments independently uh, elected to fund large-scale randomized controlled studies on both sides of the Atlantic. 
and these studies really didn't know of each other's existence for a while. And one was the Katie study in uh, the US and the other was the Cutler study here. Before we come on to discuss those studies in particular, your, your editorial seems to be saying that these are very important studies, but there have been randomized controlled trials looking at the effectiveness of psychosis. There have been lots of these studies before. Why are you arguing that we should pay particular attention to these two studies? Well, that's a very good point, and it's part of the problem, I guess. There have been many, many uh, randomized controlled trials, as you say, and that's led to an increasing sort of number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses based on those trials. But as you know, meta-analyses are only as good as the data that you put into them. And the problem with the pre-existing trials uh, in by far the majority of cases is that they are short-term trials, really run on uh, uh, highly selected groups of individuals with a range of exclusion criteria, often substance misuse, for instance. It really doesn't reflect the routine clinical practice that uh, all of us see um, in the NHS. And the issue there, of course, was not the industry who was, who was sponsoring most of these trials was trying to dupe people. They were really running the trials largely because these were so-called phase three trials, regulatory trials, to demonstrate the efficacy of, of these compounds, often in pursuit of uh, uh, regulatory authorities' approval and licensing in, in uh, different countries. So these were trials which were done for a particular purpose, showing short-term efficacy against uh, a comparator compound or placebo, typically over six to 12 weeks high dropout rates, selected samples. So the issue then arose, well, how relevant are the results of these trials to the sort of day-to-day jobbing clinician like you or me working in a clinic trying to get a quality of life improvement in someone with a chronic schizophrenic illness? And it was really trials like Katie and Cutlass, which are called practical or pragmatic trials, are trying to get more of a handle on effectiveness uh, which is, you know, do these drugs work in routine clinical situations rather than can these drugs work in idealized clinical situations? And the sort of typical characteristics of so-called pragmatic trials is that they have relatively large sample sizes, fairly simple outcomes, which are few in number. Uh, they typically are run over uh, months and years rather than days and weeks. And they tried to have broad inclusion criteria, which are more reflective of the general sort of uh, population who are going to be exposed to these drugs in real life. So if you could start with the KT study, how would you summarize the main take-home message from that one? Well, the KT study, as you know, it was a large multi-center randomized controlled trial, uh, which had a double-blind design really looking at the outcomes of people with established schizophrenia who had often been unwell for many years, uh, who who were randomized to uh, a specific medication, one of the second-generation drugs, the typical drugs uh, available in the U.S. at that time, or, interestingly, a first-generation drug, perfenazine. And the uh, take-home message uh, uh, was was this really that uh, uh, there were two parts to the trial? There was KT1, which was the comparison I've just talked about. People who weren't getting better in KT1 then were, had the option of being re-randomised into what was called KT2, 
which was a comparison, uh, not, not double-blind this time, but between clozapine and uh, other second-generation atypical drugs. And the take-home message was, firstly, that the second-generation drugs really didn't differentiate very much at all from the first-generation drug prophenazine, either in terms of uh, clinical uh, effectiveness or in terms of tolerability and side effects. And it's worth bearing in mind that the, the primary outcome chosen in KT, which was, uh, I think, a fairly good measure of uh, clinical effectiveness, at least for a double-blind trial, was what's called time to all cause discontinuation, which is simply a uh, measure of how long the clinician decides to keep prescribing this drug, which he or she doesn't know the identity of, uh, and when they say, okay, enough's enough, uh, this person's getting too many side effects or the symptoms aren't getting better, I'm going to stop this and try something else. So that was the primary outcome. So part of it was that uh, second-generation drugs were no better than perfenazine, although olanzapine showed uh, a slight but statistically significant um, uh, advantage in terms of efficacy, but fascinatingly showed the worst side effects, so, which was rather conundrum in terms of clinicians. The second thing that Katie showed was that clozapine was better than any of the other SGAs in terms of uh, uh, clinical outcomes in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. And really, uh, we're going on, I guess, to talk about Cutlass now, but just cutting to the chase, those two main findings are exactly what Cutlass showed as well, that the older drugs, uh, if used and prescribed carefully, are no worse than the newer drugs in terms of uh, uh, clinical effectiveness or tolerability. And secondly, that clozapine is better than anything else. The Cutler study came to similar conclusions, but it was a slightly different study, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, it was a different study, and partly because um, we weren't lucky enough to have nearly as much funding, uh, the, 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 I think, uh, uh, than, than uh, Jeff Liebman's study. It was a study which really set out to compare not individual drugs, but classes of drugs. And people often ask why we chose to do that. The reason really is this, that clinical guidelines at that time in the late 90s, and certainly up till now really, class antipsychotic drugs into three boxes, if you like. The conventionals or first-generation drugs, the uh, second-generation drugs or atypicals, and clozapine and don't otherwise differentiate between individual drugs within those boxes, with the exception of clozapine. So the trial really was constructed to be uh, to, to reflect that distinction made in clinical guidelines, such as uh, made by NICE, for instance, and we were comparing classes of drugs. So how the trial worked was that a clinician would identify a patient in whom, for whatever reason, they were thinking of changing the medication, either because it wasn't working very well or because the person was getting too many side effects. Instead of switching the medication, we'd ask them if they could refer the uh, patient into the trial. And uh, at that point, the clinician was asked the following question. They were asked, well, if uh, your patient gets randomized onto a first-generation drug, which one would you like it to be? And similarly for the second-generation drug. So the clinician elected ahead of randomization which specific individual drug, either first or second generation drug, they want to use given the results of the randomization. So the patient was then randomized and then treated according to the drug of choice pre-selected by the clinician, depending on which group they're randomized to. And we followed people up for, for a year, during which time, of course, many people, uh, many patients did change their medication. Um, 
And we showed uh, in terms of the results that um, not only was there no advantage to the uh, second generation drugs in terms of our two primary outcomes, one was quality of life, the other was uh, uh, schizophrenia symptoms on the PAN scale, but there was a strong trend towards first generation drugs being better. And that just amazed us. And uh, we were so sure, and our hypothesis certainly was, that, that it would uh, be the opposite, that second generation drugs would be an improvement, that we actually rechecked the data um, to check that we hadn't entered the, uh, all the data points back to front. The second part of the trial, uh, to, to finish off with Cutlass, was uh, uh, again similar to the KT2 trial. This was a separate trial in which uh, more formally defined treatment-resistant uh, people with treatment-resistant schizophrenia, that is, were randomized to one of their second-generation drugs, not clozapine, or to clozapine. And with uh, that comparison, we now very clearly showed an advantage to clozapine at one-year follow-up in terms of uh, uh, clinical symptom improvement, and also, interestingly, that uh, uh, patients preferred clozapine. So we asked patients in both uh, parts of this trial, Cutlass 1 and Cutlass 2, what they thought of their medication in Cutlass 1. They expressed no preference for second-generation drugs over first-generation drugs. But in Cutlass 2, people who were on the receiving end of the drugs clearly thought clozapine was good stuff. So where does your editorial leave uh, doctors and patients in terms of the recommendations for prescribing for psychosis? Well, I think it's been a difficult message for many, not, not only uh, prescribers, uh, but also uh, uh, users, patients, uh, and carers too. And that's because I think, as I said earlier, we were all really eager to believe that the second-generation drugs were a genuine therapeutic advance. And we're disappointed uh, and reluctant to believe that this may not, after all, be the case. I think that where this leaves prescribers is that, first of all, we know that all antipsychotic drugs, with the exception of clozapine, which, which may be slightly different, but all the other drugs really work by the same preclinical mechanism. That's dopamine D2 receptor blockade. Um, there's one or two have a slight tweak on that, that such as aripiprazole, but essentially that's the mechanism. Secondly, uh, we know that all drugs cause side effects. And the main difference between the uh, first-generation drugs and second-generation drugs insofar as that's still a legitimate and useful distinction, is really choosing between side effects as much as anything else. Um, so where this leaves clinicians is, I suppose, if one wants to look at the bright side, on the bright side, it's okay to use first-generation drugs. Certainly nice guidelines still allow us to do that, but we've rather forgotten about them. They've got a bad press because we used to use them badly. We used to use them in too high a dosage, and I think what uh, Katie and Cutlass have shown is that if clinicians who are now used to prescribing more modest doses of drugs with the second-generation drugs, if they deploy those sorts of prescribing practices with the first-generation drugs, they'll find that their uh, tolerability is better and that they're as effective as the second-generation drugs. Um, so I guess uh, looking on the bright side, it means that we've got a larger number of therapeutic options, although some of these are old options. I suppose the other implication is that uh, all these drugs have limitations, and it re really does um, 
focus our minds on finding drugs with a new mechanism of action. And I know that a lot of uh, uh, activities going on in industry and elsewhere trying to find uh, the whole holy grail of antipsychotic drugs, which is really to find something that, that, that isn't just a, a dopamine-blocking agent. One clue we have to that is clozapine, which both these trials have shown does seem to work better and which patients prefer. What is it about clozapine that is so magical? But it's also really developing new compounds in the absence of what pretty much all other disorders in medicine have, which is an animal model. We have to sort of follow preclinical hunches and hypotheses like the original dopamine hypothesis, I suppose, uh, in, in, in producing new agents. In terms of the drug names that come through from your editorial in the Cutlass and Katie trials, it looks as though clozapine is a name that comes through as something um, that, that we should seriously consider. Um, Alanzapine comes through fairly well, despite the side effect profile that you mentioned. But another drug that you haven't mentioned which seems to come through fairly well is sulpiride. Could you say something about that? Yeah, well, this, that's, that's right. And of course, sulpiride wasn't used in the Katie trial because it's not licensed in the U.S., but in the, um, in, in the Cutlass trial, so just uh, recalling for a minute what we were asking clinicians to do, and recalling also that this was back in the, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001, where clinicians thought that this trial was patently bonkers. Why on earth were we doing such a trial when the advantage for second-generation drugs was so clearly demonstrated? So clinicians, to some extent, took a lot of persuading even to consider entering patients into this trial, which some thought was actually unethical. They didn't like the idea of their patients being in danger of being randomized back onto an old drug. So when they were electing to, to um, uh, uh, which specific drug they wanted to choose in advance, a lot of them opted for drugs which they felt had some sort of reputation for so-called atypicality or drugs which they thought had less in terms of uh, side effects, um, or even drugs which they hadn't much experience of before and, and thought that maybe they, were, they, they, um, they might give them a go. And sulpride, is, is, as you imply, was the treatment of choice in getting on for half the cases on first-generation drugs. Um, so I think that there's nothing particularly to suggest that sulpride is anything other than a than a, a low-potency, um, uh, 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 typical antipsychotic, a first-generation drug. It's been around for many, many years. And if you look at the Cochrane Review on sulpiride, which does exist, uh, all the data there comes from the sort of uh, uh, 1970s, there's certainly nothing to suggest that it has a, a, a sort of an atypical profile and that seems to have been a myth that has grown up around it. But nonetheless, I don't think there's anything uh, 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 bad with sulfide. It seems to be an effective antipsychotic, and it's well worth bearing in mind. So what seems to have gone wrong here in terms of why doctors move so rapidly um, it seems to the idea that one class of drugs was better than the other, when in fact now the evidence seems to suggest that the situation is a lot more complicated than that. 
Isn't one of the problems in terms of my own clinical experience that after the new drugs came onto the market, we came under enormous pressure from from all sorts of people to prescribe the newer drugs, including, incidentally, pharmacists or ph- pharmacy departments, when one's own clinical instinct was that, that the, the um, benefits may have been oversold? I think that's right. And I think uh, it's, it's easy to blame uh, clinicians, prescribers in all this, but we're only human. And I think that part of that being human is, as I said earlier, to want to believe that there is a new class of drugs. These drugs were marketed extremely widely. Um, as clinicians, we're no less susceptible, I'm afraid, to that sort of marketing than anyone, anyone else, really. Um, and our belief and our hope that this really did represent a therapeutic advance really carried us, carried us along, I think, with a, a general wave of enthusiasm. And don't forget that, that the drugs were also being marketed to patient groups and to carers. And that we, as clinicians, were coming under a lot, lot of pressure from, from those groups, too, to use the new uh, drugs wherever possible. So anyone who harbored any sort of um, doubts about uh, uh, the uh, improved efficacy of this new class of drugs was really increasingly seen to be a bit of a crank. Um, uh, and interestingly, I suppose, in retrospect, the... Uh, NICE guidance, which came out in 2002 on the atypicals and is still uh, the most recent guidance, was very cautious in its wording. And in retrospect, that's probably no bad thing. I think the the um, uh, the wording went something like, uh, uh, as, as the main recommendation, uh, we recommend now that uh, atypical drugs are also considered as first-line treatments in schizophrenia. So people often forget that the NICE guidance actually still allows uh, using first-generation drugs first-line. And actually, perhaps that very cautious statement, which was thought to be a bit of a stick in the muddism at the time, uh, was, uh, was actually quite, quite, um, quite correctly, correctly framed. Professor Sean Lewis, thank you very much indeed.